In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. We are all, by nature, egotists. Well, maybe present company accepted, except for me. We are all, by nature, egoists, if you prefer. Fair enough. If by that we mean that we are all, each and every one of us, in our own unique way, alike in this, that we have a center to ourselves, an executive center that drives us and draws the things in us together, an ego, an I, then, yes, we are all egoists. We all have a center. Let me go further there and suggest that we are all, by nature, self-centered, By this I mean we are centered on that I to such an extent that whenever we are drawn by delight or driven into danger, that I and its advice, its constant voice in our ear, renders all other causes or persons around us superfluous, invisible, inaudible, occasions for lip service only. Let's look at our texts today. They are all about egoism, if you prefer, about not just that we as typical humans have a self, and the self has a center, which is cause for celebration, but that when circumstances are trying, when times are tough enough, when our situation in space and time puts us in sufficient danger or imminent threat of loss, that self that I and all it stands for and all it represents, self-preservation becomes not just the center but the circumference of our awareness, the horizon beyond which we cannot see. And this is not a cause for celebration. Saul, Paul, formerly Saul, and the disciples of Jesus stuck in a boat in a storm on the Sea of Galilee all have this in common, the threat of imminent loss of their lives. True, for King Saul, we are dealing with an imagined threat. It's a threat to his livelihood instead of his life. His days as king are over. The storms in which he finds himself rage within. God has withdrawn his spirit. That is occasion for concern. God has withdrawn his sustaining power by which Saul can maintain his self-identity. And that can be trying enough for a man of middle years in which this happens or should happen by default, by God's design. That God has taken what was Saul's by right of birth, Saul thought, and given them to someone else, a kid, and given that kid talent, not just for music, but for war and put that kid not just into Saul's life, but into his own heart. That is hard to bear. Saul may imagine the threat to his life, but there is no more loyal servant than David, or so it seems for now. Whether David is any better than Saul, the word of God will have a few things to say about that. But for now, we see David in a very positive light, and Saul in a very different light indeed. And Saul's own inner demons of failure and regret are being stirred up, turned loose, and turned in on him. 
and turn him, Saul, into a brooding, impotent presence within his own body, within his own house, within his own kingdom. His soul is sick. And all the energy flows to the ego, to the center. But the ego then goes into defensive mode, and all the things that can heal Saul are attacked. What can heal Saul? Music. Music has charms that soothe the savage breast, Congreve. Music can heal him. David's music, which knits Saul's, David's soul to the soul of God. Music, God's divine gift, by which order and purpose, a sense above all of interrelationship, of all things working together for good, and even life's dissonances and misadventures being resolved. That's the word, resolution, resolved and brought home. That's what music is all about. That and delayed gratitude. Have you ever looked at a so-called lyre, like the one that David is playing, at least in our translation? It looks so squat and scrawny, ten strings of gut, a sounding box, a few posts, a crossbar, a few bits of leather or peg. But put it in the hands of a master, one highly skilled. Tune those strings to a modal scale. Put those two hands, the lyre is played with two hands, to work. Plucking with a pectrum, plectrum in one hard, getting a hard nasal twang, or strumming with the hand, softly, as our texts literally say, maybe softly parallel fourths and fifths, wandering to and fro, maybe a drone-like ostinato grounding us, maybe even many melodies at once, coming and going. This is what music is all about. Compassed within the compass of an octave and a half, maybe all of this, not just a tune and some chords, but real music, Invention, intention, and above all, interaction. Polyphony, a conversation between different ideas, a mingling, an entwining of different lines, each of which has its own identity, each of which makes the whole, the whole each voice of which depends upon the other. All brought together, all sent out, all brought home. That's music. The life of the soul. The presence of the soul's life, which is not the ego, which is not God. Which is God, sorry. David was a very relational young man. That was God's gift to David. That was David's undoing, yes, on more than one occasion. But because of that, that relationality, the ability to love, the ability to delight in the things within and without the soul all coming together, weaving together and resolving. Because of that, David's heart is the heart of God. Not just an ego with a megaphone shouting something out over a few chords. Music, polyphony, many voices weaving together. And music surely, supremely can touch that heart, in each of us, and knit us heart to heart with one another and with God. That's what it symbolizes. That's what it does. Well, so much for Saul, King Saul. Where does that leave Saul now, Paul? We'll get to that. Where does that leave Jesus and the disciples in that boat? 
in the same place as Saul, and Saul now Paul. Now it is the disciples who have been possessed of collective madness, group hysteria, which means they are all together united in thinking only of themselves, not of one another, of themselves. Their threat seems real enough, as I said. Yet in their panic, the one person they lose sight of, the one they ignore, the one person who can save them is right there in the center, in their midst, asleep. They have not seen fit to invoke him, nor have they seen fit to awake him, to advise him of the danger to himself. They are all about themselves to a man. What do they say? Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? We. We. Who is that we? A collection of egos at one in their fright. But Jesus will not be drawn into it. Peace. Be still. Why are you so afraid? The source of their security, the source of that peace force for order which drives their desires and drives them home, that knits them together within and without, the captain and master of their souls is right there with them all along, waiting to be invoked with a song, with music, not with screams of panic, waiting to be awakened and to awaken their souls, to shift their attention from their selves to one another. With a song they can sing together, maybe even in harmony, maybe even in parts, four parts, if they have learned them. Music. Music is about listening as much as it is about playing, about self-expression. It's about the soul, the whole being, its wheel and woe and not just about the ego, the force that drives and draws and always screams to be heard and always tries to take control, to have its way always, to get away when it can't. Music is about being for one another and for God. I think we often see, to take the musical analogy, think that our life is like one great big solo concerto. (laughs) and We spend our lives preparing for our moment on the stage, practicing all those cadenzas and flourishes, preparing for the moment when everything is looking upon us. But we discover not that music is all about being an orchestral player on the platform. It's about playing in an orchestra down on the pit (laughs) when all the attention is up on the stage, maybe on that divine trinity of dancers who choreograph one another. Wherever music is played, it is about peace, however. The peace of setting out and coming home, the peace of knowing wherever you wander, however entangled in dissonances life becomes, there is a purpose, there is a path. And every moment matters, every note must be played, even the ones that don't make sense at the time. And sometimes there are pauses when you simply sit and count bars. As you can tell, I used to play timpani, not first violin. (laughs) You count a lot of bars when you're playing timpani. You listen attentively to what everyone else is doing, and then you jump in 
Hope you're in the right place at the right time. But you're part of something more. You have a part, a part to play, and play it you must when it is your turn. But your part is in itself incomplete. You get a few cues if the part has been copied well, which means you get forgiveness, grace if you have lost count while waiting, lost patience, been distracted. Ta-ta! There are the trombones. Now I know what to listen for, and now I know where I am when I've lost my way. Landmarks. And when you come in, you play and listen. How much is it all about you even then? Maybe after counting off a hundred measures, you discover when you come in that you're just in the background anyway, part of the orchestral texture of a sea of sound, providing support for the ones who are doing the heavy lifting. You look to the conductor, the Holy Spirit, to wave you in and to weave you in threads of life in life's great tapestry. So does Paul say, in a favorable time, I listened to you, and in a day of salvation, I have helped you. Well, that's Isaiah, but the message is Paul's. God is with us, not asleep. And if he seems absent or absent-minded, maybe there's a reason for his silence. By great endurance in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, in the midst of the storms of life, the most hostile circumstances, the cacophony of spiritual, psychological, and physical disorder, there, in the midst of that, is purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love. By truthful speech and the power of God, there is peace. Peace at the center. Not something in ourselves striving to take control and assert our agenda, but peace. Look at that litany of losses, if you like. Look at what the signs of the Christian life are to the world. Dishonor, slander, we are treated as impostors, as unknown, as dying, as punished, as sorrowful, as poor, as having nothing. If proper self-presentation, if presentation of one's self-image to the world is what we're all about, if pumping out our own PR is the Christian's chief concern, then according to those rules, Paul is not getting the job done at all. They're not on it. They're not in it. But living the Christian life is not that matter of self-projection. In the end, it's not about performance at all. Paul is presenting us an image of the church that is taking, was taking souls captive for Christ like never before or since. Yet this is a church very poor. Not just poor in goods, but poor in spirit, yet rich in the Holy Spirit. This is a church of listeners rather than a church of litanists listing their own complaints or the injuries done them by a wicked world. A church of sufferers, co-sufferers, joining voices and forces even with that same world that so tormented them precisely at those points 
where that world is in pain. This is a church that is not just listening, but has an ear for dissonance, for cacophony, for the unresolved stress of life. Our heart is wide open, right, Paul's. That is our agenda. Our heart is wide open. Our ears are listening, not just for the pain of the world, but for its resolution in Christ. Our part is before us. We know it ends in the key in which it began, though not a moment too soon, and not before there have been a few deceptive cadences and a rather extended coda. We know that we are all going home. We know that we all end together. Maybe in all the storms and stresses of life, that is all we can ask. We all have our parts to play in this great symphony, as Paul will say. That's the word he uses in Romans 8. Each of us is just a part. But no part is apart from the whole. Without the parts, there is nothing. Silence. But the part is not everything. So we play. God only gives us our parts, one or two bars at a time. But when we get lost, we don't wave our hands and ask God to stop the music. We wait patiently and listen for the cues that our divine copyist in his word has so thoroughly provided us. Or watch for the conductor of the Holy Spirit, as I said again, to wave us in and weave us into the fabric. We are all in this together. However important the part we play must seem to us, it's only a part. But play it we must. This final thought. We play it by practice. We prepare by practicing the virtues, the Christian virtues. Practice makes perfect? No. That's impossible. Only God is perfect. Practice makes possible. Now that is perfect. Let us work, sparing nothing, to become all that Christ is calling us to do. But as we play our part, let us be a community of listeners as well. Amen.